Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist who is passionate about building a better, more sustainable, and truly regenerative future. Every week, I invite you to care a little bit more so that together we can all be a little better. Today, we're going to connect on racial injustice, inequality, and racism. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter as a movement and how this movement seeks to create a more equitable society. But before I introduce my guest and really get started today, I want to talk for a moment about what's presently happening in the Supreme Court. This week, an unprecedented event occurred. A leaked draft majority opinion hit news media coast to coast that seems to indicate that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. The reason I bring this up today is that guess who is most impacted by lack of access to health care, including safe abortion procedures? Sadly, it is the economically constrained people of our society, and dominantly that's made up of minorities. So what happens when abortion is made illegal in any state? The incidence of illegal abortion climbs. In the Observer this week, Word and Black this is wordandblack.com, sat down with Jeanette Robinson-Flint, who's the executive director for Black Women for Wellness. Jeanette gave voice to what many of us are already thinking. She says, I am dismayed. I am angry about the ways that the Supreme Court is going. 78% of Black women do not approve of the overturn of Roe v. Wade. 85% of Black women will support someone they love who chooses to have an abortion. With the overturn of Roe v. Wade, what it does is put women across the middle of the country at risk. They won't be able to access abortion. And if they have to travel to another state, there is a cost of abortion. And it is unfortunate because every woman, every black woman deserves control, autonomy, and self-determination over her own life. It's a basic human right. You get to say if you want to be pregnant or not. Now, this is not what I had planned to talk about today, but I cannot help but lead with it. Today, I'm going to be connecting with an incredible young man, Martin Henson, founder of B-Men Foundation. Martin has spent the last 10 years advocating for Black lives, addressing the systemic issues that affect Black and marginalized groups through both conventional and unconventional avenues. Martin created B-Men Foundation, an organization to support Black men as an extension of this work. So Martin, I know I've set a bleak tone for the start of this show today, but I'm itching to know what you think about all of this. How do you see the potential of an overturn of Roe v. Wade? Yeah, I think it's gonna be a fight. I, I'm angry, I'm sad. Uh, I, I feel ignorant in the sense that, that I should know more because I'm a perfectionist because I want to be ready and equipped to support the black women that are going to have to navigate this in addition to the other women of color and women throughout the world that are trying to figure out how they're going to exist in the american space it's just it's bleak it is it is bleak it is is exactly that well and i think the the biggest thing i'm seeing in media is that women feel helpless and as if they are completely out of control 
of their lives. And so I know that that may sound like an extreme statement from somebody who I've never had an abortion. I have two boys. But the reality is, if you're taking something away from someone that gives them autonomy, that gives them the right to be able to bear a child when they're ready to, that doesn't say to them suddenly, you know, I know that you really want to go this career track or finish high school, as a for example, but you're pregnant now and you're just going to have to do that. So put all your other plans on hold and, you know, welcome to mamahood. That being said, too, some women don't want to be mothers. And I have to say, it's their right to choose that path. Having children is a huge responsibility, but it also has the effect of keeping us economically constrained if we don't have the means to fully support that child at the time that it enters our lives. And so, I mean, I can say this as someone who put my career first for a good amount of time, and now I have kids, and it's it's complicated to make time for everything in your daily lives, to take care of your children the way you want to, while still being able to do the other things that you need to do in your daily life, to pay the bills and everything else. What happens when your kid gets sick and now you can't go to work? Well, if you can't afford ch- health care or child care, what do you do? And so I think that this is something that affects Black men. It affects all men, as well as all women. If we suddenly see this this tide change and, you know, a, an act that was put in place in the 70s that essentially protected people from, you know, having to seek a, an illegal means to take care of something that they weren't ready for. I mean, I, I just am very worried about the state of our social systems here in the United States. Yeah. So I guess that was commentary more than anything, but I'm really looking for a check from you. Like, how do you think that this will impact people and in your community? Well, I, I think people really need to learn to stop seeing it as a everybody's issue that starts with women's bodies and look at it as a women's issue that affects everybody and that you should be invested in a very real way. Uh, and instead of waiting to, to be to waiting to get instructions. Which as a as a man, as a guy, I feel myself getting caught into that mode. All right, well, when somebody tells me what to do, I'm gonna do it. Uh, but in this, when we think about, even as I think about things with be men and the social determinants of health and all the things that impact, if I'm trying to frame what's happening with men, I'm looking at it, economics, education, healthcare access, communities, experiences of racism and discrimination. But when we're thinking about what's happening in the bodies of 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 women right now, there's a whole range of healthcare that they're not being able to determine for themselves. So I, I think it's it should be important to to every man, every person to to be invested in this fight to make sure that women have autonomy over their body. Thank you for that. Um, I I just ultimately I see that we're at a crossroads, and I didn't expect to be here again so soon. It seems every time we turn, there's there's yet something more coming forward that is going to impact or have this strong effect on social systems in the United States and, and other minority communities, as well as just all people. So I'm curious, um, really, when did you get Be Men Foundation started? You got it started about 10 years ago. So this is before the Black Lives Matter movement really started. So tell me about your early work and what you're doing now. Well, I've been doing activism work for 10 years. Be Men started about four years ago in 2018. A big thing about it was actually Me Too. It, the evolution of Be Men expanded over time into something that included 
a specific focus on black men and building support spaces and advocacy. But in the beginning, it was thinking about what response should men be having to Me Too. Then it became men of color, then it became black men. Then it became, oh, we black men need their own space to process and, and advocate. And we need to find support. We need to understand consent for ourselves as well as how it impacts others. So it was a, it was a, a really climbing journey of, of felt like a mountain of all these obstacles of what to prioritize and what not to. But that's that's a lot of where it, where it came from. Well, I have to say, in this particular instance, I've often wondered what it's like to be in a man's shoes as this Me Too kind of movement in itself is also coming out. More women are coming forward with allegations that they have been abused in some ways and you know how how that could be discomforting to the male population. So can you tell me a little bit about what that was like and the sorts of things that you helped men work through as the Me Too movement started? Yeah, you know, I haven't had this question in a long time. Uh, I appreciate that. It was it was hard. It was hard to 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 realize that women didn't always feel safe in the ways that men imagine themselves being in relation to them. Uh, and so having conversations around what to do and how to do about that, it was it was me and several men, uh, not just black men. And what we ended up doing is creating a workshop with men around sexual harm and processing through what that means and experiences that uh, men had engaged in and they're trying to figure out how do I actually uh, become better? How do I become accountable to a group of men? How do, how do I really look at this in a way that shows I'm evolving and thinking differently? And then the other side of that is uh, how are men actually understanding their own bodies and their own sense of consent? That plays into it as well. So as I was intervening in, in what the, all of the things that men think that allow us to act this way, also was finding out that men have stories of things that have happened to them that wasn't quite consensual and them figuring out do they have permission to to talk about that and work through that as well well that brings to mind for me an earlier episode where i interviewed tim Mousseau, and tim Mousseau has a career basically helping people develop better policies other companies that can support a system where people all feel safe and where something doesn't happen to them that, you know, was untoward. In his case, he had been abused in high school and or college rather, and didn't even know it had happened until years later, this person sent him pictures via social media of him in compromising situations that he had no recollection of. And where it was obviously him because the the tattoos he had were pictured and things like that. And so it's quite possible that he, you know, had been drugged or roofied or just after he passed out, you know, having a fun night out in college was abused. Now, the specifics of that are unimportant, but the reality is that he's a man that came forward and is talking about this in an open way to help normalize that journey and that story for other men, because men have so often been silent when something comes up that is, you know, that challenges their masculinity in a way, because we've somehow tied this abuse to masculinity. And if it happened to you, then, you know, you're somehow at risk in that way, like your masculinity is questioned or challenged. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I've perceived it from the men in my life who've opened mm -hmm. up. And so I wonder what you would have to say about this concept of 
you know, connection to masculinity in the Me Too movement since, you know, you've, you've been so adept at working in this particular way? For a lot of men, concepts of, of maleness and masculinity are really boiled down to being strong, uh, being cool, sometimes being callous, being unaffected, uh, navigating through life's journeys without a lot of wear and tear. So you, you're supposed to just be man up, be strong enough to navigate. And that's what makes you a strong man. So I have to tackle these ideas of what a strong man, what a uh, vulnerable man looks like to be able to get to the point where men can share these stories in a way that can allow them to move to the next step. So as it relates to the interesting overlap between how black men do this and navigate their, their bodies and the, and the relationships that we, we have to it is that by way of incarceration, you know, and let's say something like stop and frisk, which an argument can be made for that sexual violence. You don't have access to your body and who you can't determine who can do what to you. And then you, you, your body is placed in incarcerated states or systemic control, which a lot of men can connect to. But when we start thinking about women having those similar lack of control, well, in a, in a very different way, I think there's space for, for men, black men to be like, ooh, here's how it feels when my body is not under my control. And I can extend that in a way that other groups of men may not be able to do to be able to lend to this fight as well. Wow. Well, I think this brings me to another question I had for you because, and running something that is focused on also celebrating a group of men, um, sometimes you'll get a question about at what point it becomes something like toxic masculinity. <laughs> and I don't, I don't see it that way at all, but I just wondered if you've come in contact or, or had to confront this type of a question before about how you have what could be a healthy masculinity and when does masculinity become toxic? Yeah, I, I didn't engage it from the position that uh, masculinity exists without a value orientation first. And then when it becomes harmful, then people say toxic masculinity and that's what they refer to. And sometimes you get in situations where their primary designation of masculinity is that it is toxic. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is show them that by way, for black men specifically, by way of having to navigate uh, the world of oppression and white supremacy, we've had to develop a different type of masculinity just, just because of that. Hmm. And across the world and across cultures, masculinity exists in a lot of different ways. So when we overlay all masculinity as inherently toxic, I try to reframe that into a conversation around which parts of masculinity have you found to be toxic in your world uh, and in your life or that you may feel constrained by, whether it's coming from you or it's impacting you to, to allow people to have space to talk about it in a way they understand it and also show them that there's masculinity can be a lot of different things. Well, and that women can also have masculine attributes. It's it's just the reality that we all have the feminine and the masculine embodied within us. And I think we get in the habit in today's world of talking about something like the divine feminine, but we don't do the same with regard to masculinity. And I think that there's a miss in there. You know, is it, it we, we hear about masculinity almost spoken of in a negative way. And I think it's all what you make of it in a way, but it would be nice if we can get our language centered around what really matters and and not be so critical of 
sex or gender or masculine versus feminine, I mean, they shouldn't necessarily be completely opposing. They're complementary as well. So, you know, you and I both have feminine and masculine attributes. Is one evil or good? Not necessarily. They're just different sides of a coin. And so I think if we can reframe our thinking, that doesn't make me a, a, a bad feminist to say that I embrace my masculine attributes as well. It's just time and place and understanding, you know, when you should express what parts of your psyche. So that's at least how I see it. And I wonder what your perspective would be, you know, considering the flip side of the coin, the femininity and masculinity. Yeah, there's, there's duality and there's multiplicity in all the ways that we exist. For some people, the masculine and feminine is not even a way that they like to characterize themselves. And I was like, all right, right. That's, that's gender cool. neutral. It's, yeah, they, they just move in that way. I think we should make sure that we're understanding the way that we're both perceived and the way that we feel internally and trying to navigate that in a way that gives everyone as much dignity as possible. So yeah, I, and even with things that are like around being vulnerable, sometimes people interpret that from me as being feminine. Okay, if that's a, if that's the term you have for it, um, it's, it's just an expansion of the, the way I would like to be. Uh, and I don't have any restrictions personally on how people label it, whether masculine, feminine, neutral. It's just that when they in, come across my masculinity, I don't want to feel as though I'm unsafe or I'm making them feel unsafe. And if there's very specific things that I can do to like create a more supportive atmosphere, then that's you know, what I'm trying to do. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And honestly, there's power in being vulnerable because you connect with people when you're vulnerable and they develop an emotional bind to you in a way. And so I, I really feel like it's all of our jobs to just be a little bit more honest and vulnerable in the day to day. You know, started this broadcast, I'd muted myself on one thing and not the other. <laughs> so two minutes of dead air. Uh, you know, might have shaken me up a little bit. But the reality is, it's okay to make mistakes. And if everyone's perfect all the time, then what's really interesting about life? Right. So I have a serious question for you. But I'm, I, I have no expectation of really what the answer is going to be. It's just, I would like to understand what it's like to be in your shoes as a black man in America today. And it's a really big question, but I would just like to get a, a purview, a snapshot of what it's like to look through the lenses that you wear in your daily life, where you live in the world. So my articulation and my intelligence, me refining that has been a function of survival as a black man in America. Because if I'm not articulate and I'm, I'm not gentle, and I'm not making people aware of how I occupy the space, then I look dangerous. If I come into a space looking neutral, I'm like, oh, well, what's what's wrong with him? Like, is this something, do I need to feel like I have to prepare myself for some violent encounter? This is coming from the other people. If I do not have some way of softening my existence in the, in space, that's, that's the everyday, that's the all the time. And then the advocacy piece is because the way that people think about Black men is inherently so racialized, I have to come out and create advocacy around the things that black men exist through and experience in ways that we're vulnerable and ways that we're human, because otherwise it wouldn't happen. So a big part of this is just survival for me. If I didn't have to have a defense around being a black man, I would be very different. 
but because I have to be on guard, I have to be thoughtful. Uh, I have to be expressive as, as a way to diffuse tension in very unique and specific ways. It's a it's an intellectual tax for sure, for sure. Uh, I I can remember being when you're younger. You know, a lot of people have anxiety around working in groups. If you have, you know, we've been in school, that whole thing. I remember if I was in a group, and if I stumbled or stammered on any answer to any question, they're not asking me nothing else <laughs> the rest of the time because I my one chance to make an impression opposite to what they already perceived me has been blown. Wow. Now oh. He's just, he's not smart anymore. He's like, that's just one example. So you, you learn to navigate in all these unique ways. And I've, over time, and honestly, through the, through the movement, I learned more ways to articulate that because I had to think about identity and vulnerability and space. And, and I'm like, all right, if I, if I'm only considerate to everybody else's space all the time, I actually got to figure out how to ask them to be considered of mine and in a way that gives me my own humanity. So that's a long way to to answer what you asked me, but that's those are my thoughts. Well, I, I think we could dig a little bit deeper. Have you spent much time outside of the United States? No, hmm. no. Yeah, Should I? this is one of the questions I've often asked my friends of different races when they go to other countries. How do they experience being their culture, and do they feel the same kind of racial strain? And it's very interesting to see you know, white people in other countries like France say, oh, racism doesn't exist here. <laughs> and then be in Paris and talking to some young kids of Arabic descent who speak Arabic, and they're speaking Verlaine, which is like a French in reverse. And I'm learning to speak Verlaine with them because it's kind of like a, a more, I'd say, structured Pig Latin. It's basically its own language, right? And then later speaking with that same person who is a white French person saying, oh, no, we don't, ex we don't have racism here. That doesn't exist. And then I say, oh, do you speak Verlaine? And then they say to me, oh, c'est surtout les Arabes qui parlent Verlaine, which means it's mostly the Arabs that speak Verlaine. And so like, even in this instance, this person is showing their true beliefs, like they may believe that the French culture is not racist and that they don't have racism, but it's still there. That being said, friends of mine who have traveled to France of different cultures have not felt the same racial strain that they felt here, at least in, you know, 10 years ago or so. I mean, that's when I was traveling more on an international scale. It's pre-having pre children. <laughs> and so I, I just am curious if you've seen some of that same thing with men in your um, group with Be Men Foundation. Have you heard different perspectives when they traveled abroad in other spaces versus their experience in America? Yeah, absolutely. It, and I, it wasn't until, so I'm from the South, from Arkansas, live in Boston now. It wasn't until I moved across country that I realized that people experienced race in very different ways. So I didn't even know how to have the conversation because I thought racism was primarily happening through this like Black Southern experience hmm. that was going on. And get here people coming from all different types of places and they have very different concepts around what's happening what's not um so i i know a guy that he's uh black and german he was talking about his experiences with racism and how it lives and how it exists so i think one of the things that happens as a function of colonialism that it creates these separations and divisions and and you know that the racism is there as a black man and that's 
this similar for all the people I've talked to. It's like the um, you know, have you played Where's Where's Waldo? You ever seen the you seen the Buddha book? Yeah, I think it's, so. <laughs> yeah, the red and yeah, white Waldo's, sweaters. He's in there somewhere. And that's how you think about racism if you're going somewhere new. He's like, I know it's here somewhere. I gotta make sure I'm aware of what what the rules are here so I don't really get caught up in anything. So I, I think that particular journey, even though I haven't gone overseas, is, is something that I'm playing everywhere I go that's that's new, unique. What are the rules for black people here? I've never had to say that out loud, but that's that's the the overlay that that comes to mind. And how might you experience microaggressions? Like that example I gave about that mm-hmm. French woman, that was very much kind of a microaggressive comment that she made. And if I had been with somebody else in that group who was Arab, they would have taken offense to that, right? And right. so it's a simple thing to modify your behavior a little bit, but the reality in my mind is you shouldn't have to. I mean, the fact that Black parents in today's society have to sit their Black boys down and have the talk about, you know, how you have to react with police if you are pulled over, whether or not you can wear a hoodie and have the hood up over your head, how you can dress and how you react to people around you dictating whether or not you might be shot. And so I don't know if you ever had the talk from your parents but mm-hmm. I'd love to know what that experience is like from your perspective. Oof. Yes, I've had to talk. So I've had to talk. And with my daughter, I just had to give her the talk. Mm-hmm. So we're starting the, and the talk is that we talk, we say it's singular, but it's, it's, it's multiple talks. So I remember when I was younger, cap guns were cool. I liked them. Maybe they weren't cool, but I was into them. <laughs> and this was before. <laughs> this was before my kids they love Nerf guns. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was a thing. So, uh, this is before they started making them paint them like orange. They don't they don't paint them black anymore. Mm-hmm. And my mom would not let me get one. And she was like, "Nah, it looks too much like a gun because I don't want you. This is before I had any sort of consciousness around any of the, the racial stuff that happens in your, your parents trying to shield you. So that that was the earliest memory that I have of that. There's been many, many conversations since then. So with my daughter. She's 11 just started having this this dialogue around what race means and all of these other things she didn't know what the clan was the ku klux klan was and i had to tell her here's the, the history of kind of how black people have been treated and it, it was rough it was hard for me because I, I cried i broke down because I, I have to break her innocence in some ways to tell her that i wasn't as explicit but What's implied is that they used to hang us from trees because if we didn't walk the right direction on the sidewalk, looked at somebody too long or all types of stuff. So it's it's conversations. And then now you have the Roe versus Wade stuff. That's another conversation. I have to game plan with my mom, her mom, you know, her grandparents to see how do you communicate this to your child? Uh, so it all comes with it. Well, you have me thinking about a book by John Ronson that I read years ago called Adventures with Extremists, where he takes um, a deep dive into these groups, these extremists. Um, And as a Jewish man, essentially, I won't say infiltrated, but he was doing an investigative journalistic piece, right? So he was interviewing people that are a part of the Ku Klux Klan, including the Grandmasters or Dragons or whatever the heck they call them, right? And he was 
continually terrified that they would discover or suspect that he might be Jewish and that that could result in some negative demise for himself. And the same thing mm -hmm. happened when then he was confronting somebody who was more of a, a Palestinian extremist and somebody who might be defined as a terrorist. So it's an incredible book. It's a really interesting and entertaining dive into these extreme, extreme sides of humanity and also very, very revealing about this kind of dark underbelly of humanity and how we are essentially manipulated into believing some of the things that we believe through like this slow kind of erosion and how today the KKK has gotten very wise to how they talk about their beliefs and focusing on nationalism and things like that to try and drive a conversation pride in your country and things along these lines, mm -hmm. which are, are, I think, quite alarming. And in reality, things like the American flag emblazoned boldly on a truck now makes me wonder about that person's um, <laughs> belief system, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's, in my mind, kind of crazy that it, we've gotten to a point where the icon of our country has become something that is actually becoming polarizing because one group has so co-opted the symbol in an emblazoned way with um, this kind of perspective of Trump's America and some of the inborn racist comments that tend to be present in that community. And so I don't know what more to say about that particular subject, except that it's important to keep our doors open and conversing about these things so that we're not essentially brainwashed as people um, right. because there, right. there can be a slow erosion through, you know, softening language about specific groups. The KKK is a hate group. Like, let's call it what mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. And not guide it or kind of couch it in terms like nationalism mm -hmm. at any rate. That's where my head is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's how it really spins out sometimes. Uh, also, America is a, like a geopolitical superpower. So <laughs> for somebody yes. somewhere, we, we represent that. And that before the internal homegrown hate groups we got, became bigger, that's how people feel and think about America. But at the same time, I think it's sometimes it's easy for us to see these things as extremes because they're, they're more visible. You know, you see somebody doing something vastly different from what the norm is. KKK, hoods, walking around, burning crosses. But the slow erosion that you mentioned that oftentimes come with economic hardship where people get start leaning farther into the, you know, the homophobic stuff, the transphobic stuff. Uh, now stuff about uh, women's rights. Mm -hmm. They don't catch themselves falling deeper into these identity funnels that make them feel important in, uh, when they're feeling anxious. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing is to really break the stigma of all of these topics by coming at it and just talking about it, talking about men of vulnerability and masculinity and talking about community with, with trans folks, talking about homophobia and incarceration. Like that's how you, 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 you demystify right. all of these anxieties. Or the systems of incarceration, the fact that it's mostly a privatized system, which is mm -hmm. built um, for profit, you know, to keep people in jail, which is, right. it's a warped system in so many ways. So mm -hmm. I, I'm really just curious about what your future lean is for B-Men Foundation. Where do you see the foundation going and growing over the course of the next couple of years? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we do the monthly meetup every uh, second Sunday. We have our next one coming up this Sunday, actually, from 5 to 7. It's digital. Check out bevenfoundation.org, and you can uh, sign up for it or Eventbrite. My vision for the next you know, five years is to have these all around the nation, spaces where Black men can come together and support each other and talk about the stigmas and, and talk about advocacy in a very specific way. Uh, using research to support the findings that we know happen, that you put people together in a room and they talk openly and more vulnerably, it decreases the levels of mental health distress, it gets them more connected to community, they get to have a more fulfilled life and increase their well-being. I would love to see that for B-men all over the U.S., all over the world. Uh, so that's what I'm pushing for, those spaces, because I know we just don't have enough. I've been on this kick lately. We don't have enough psychiatrists, therapists, mental health workers to deal with all the trauma that we exist under on a daily basis. So we need something to be able to do in the meanwhile with each other to support the average person who's going through a hard time or who just wants community. I want be man to be that. Right. Well, I applaud the effort and I wish that for you. I hope that there is one day soon a chapter in my local area and the Santa Cruz Mountains, perhaps. So a yes. great place to go camping, get outdoors and, and have some events like that here. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. Now, if there was a particular question that I haven't asked that you wish I had or some thought you'd like to leave our audience with today, what would it be? Yeah, I've been really thinking about, well, first of all, I, I have to say, check out B-Man Foundation, bmanfoundation.org. Really, I'm really thinking about men making sure that we lean into what's happening for women right now. And I'm thinking about a lot, this is my personal reflections, what are the ways that I can use my platform and, and my brand and my name to, to engage those conversations that are accessible for men without being a burden for women? That's, that's where my, my head is at. Well, especially with what's happening with Roe v. Wade presently, I have to say I completely agree. And I, I the one thing that I kind of lean back on anytime I'm talking to a not-for-profit that is focused on social systems or social advocacy, social impact in some way, is that we really are all in this together. Because together we thrive, and when we separate ourselves we falter, we crumble, we don't do as well as we might. And I think it's also really important to open those difficult conversations and reach across aisles with people that may not agree with you. Because doing so and especially being vulnerable with them and asking questions can disarm them and you can affect change. You can actually influence people that way. And so I applaud what you're doing. I appreciate the support and the love and all of that. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for taking this time with me today and for just being so open and willing to talk about Roe v. Wade because that's a tough subject for many people. Yeah, no problem. No problem. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it with you. So I, I just have to make sure I'm just as effective as possible in supporting women and, and navigating this. Fantastic. Now, to connect with Martin, I encourage you to visit bmenfoundation.org. And if you're active on social platforms, you can follow Martin's work at B-Men Foundation. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more 
and we can be better. We can even regenerate our social systems and save this planet. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Mm